book of Hosea, we come to the first of what we know as the minor prophets. There are, these are the last 12 books in our arrangement of the Old Testament. We call them generally the minor prophets. As early as Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but as early as Ecclesiasticus, the Twelve were gathered together into one volume, which was known as the Book of the Twelve. To Jews of the Lord's day and time, they did not refer to these as twelve books, but always as the book, the book of the twelve. They felt they were just aspects of one prophetic ministry. The Septuagint followed this arrangement, although it did um, uh, allow for a slightly different order within the twelve. It didn't follow the order that we have as at present. And Jewish tradition ascribes the gathering of these twelve into one volume to the great synagogue of Ezra. It, it uh, says that it was then that it was decided to um, couple and combine these twelve uh, prophets into one volume. As I think Mr. Sparks said and when he was last here, the term minor does not uh, imply less importance or less value than the major. It only indicates length, that's all. The first four are uh, much lengthier than the last 12, and that is the only reason why some are called major and some are called minor. Uh, in actual fact, their value and importance uh, is as great uh, as the uh, four major prophets. And furthermore, neither do the minor prophets follow the major chronologically. Some people have got an idea that when you finish Daniel, then chronologically in history, Hosea appeared. And then after Hosea, Joel, and after Joel, Amos, and so on. But chronologically, the minor prophets did not follow the major prophets. Indeed, um, Jonah, Amos, and Joel at least preceded Isaiah. And Micah and Hosea were contemporary with Isaiah. So um, it is not uh, a chronological thing either. It is simply a question of length, that's all, uh, that has uh, decided the distinction uh, between the four and the twelve. Here in these twelve books, as we have them, we have the crystallized and condensed ministry of twelve prophets covering over 400 years of history. And we can never overestimate the value of these books. I believe it's a tragedy when God's people look upon little books like the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and uh, Lamentations as being of far less value than a big book like Isaiah. Um, that's a false sense and scale of values. Uh, we often think that the big things are the most valuable. Uh, that's not always so by any means. These twelve may have had their ministry condensed and crystallized into, in some cases, almost two chapters, uh, just a few sentences. But um, their ministry and their place and position uh, is of tremendous value, can never overestimate uh, the um, value and importance of these. Now, Hosea is the first. And it's very interesting that Hosea is not the first chronologically. And so it's all the more uh, reason why we ought to note the positioning of the prophet Hosea. He is the first of the twelve, and yet he is the last prophet of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel, or what we call the northern kingdom, when the kingdom split up, 
uh, into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Um, there were a number of prophets in either uh, of the uh, two kingdoms. Both of them uh, had quite a number of prophets. Hosea was the last in the line of prophets who ministered in Israel. Though he is the first in this in in position in the twelve, he is in actual fact the last prophet of the northern kingdom. And it's the most interesting thing that the Holy Spirit has placed him at the beginning because as always, and this is a very important point to make, as always when the Holy Spirit places any book at the start or at the beginning, it's generally speaking, if not always, fundamental to all the others that come in that section. Thus Genesis is absolutely fundamental to the whole Bible, but of course it's absolutely fundamental to the law, to the Pentateuch, the first five books. In the same way, you go on to Joshua and the way it's fundamental to so much, and so you can come on to the other books. It's very interesting. Isaiah is fundamental to all the prophets. Hosea is fundamental to the last twelve. It's as if the Holy Spirit wants to place him there. Now, if we'd followed the chronological order, we ought to have put Amos before Hosea. But, you know, when we come to Amos, we shall be just a little frightened, for Amos is, uh, has very little tenderness in him at all. His ministry is one of utter severity. Oh, it's a beautiful ministry. It's an eloquent ministry, a flowing style, but it is one of utmost severity. Hosea could not be more different. There is about Hosea the unbelievable depths of tenderness, unbelievable depths. Of all the prophets, perhaps, uh, um, Hosea has these depths of sympathy and affection and of tenderness in dealing with some of the harshest and cruelest problems uh, that beset uh, God's people. Hosea's style is not an easy style. Indeed, it's been described as difficult and abrupt. You can never accuse Hosea of long-windedness or of adversity. His style is one in which he never, ever elaborates. When he illustrates something, he has the most remarkable gift of doing it with two or three words. He will call, for instance, Ephraim a silly dove. Now you just think of it. There's a, a beautiful illustration which most of us would have probably used quite a, a paragraph or two of words on. But a silly dove uh, beautifully personifies, symbolizes the inability of, of Israel to come down off the fence, to be definite one way or the other. Uh, he speaks of Israel as a cake, not turned. That's all. As simply as a cake not turned. What does he mean? Unbalanced. One side's got burnt to a cinder and the rest's undone. It's not uh, uh, got there. See? And these are the kind of little illustrations that uh, uh, the whole book of Hosea is filled with. He never elaborates. He never spends many words on anything. His style is abrupt. And it's uh, a difficult one because it's a very disjointed style. He feels things intensely. Hosea seems to contradict himself at times. One moment he is in the depths of despair over something and the next moment he seems to be in the heights of heaven. He feels intensely what is coming to him or what the impressions that he is receiving at the particular point. If he sees the lewdness of God's people. The impression is tremendous upon him. He feels it very deeply. But if at the same time he feels either the anger of God, then he immediately uh, um, expresses it. On the other hand, if he feels the, the tenderness of God, the grace of God, he immediately feels it. It's as if God has chosen a man who has very sensitive and intense feelings in order to make him the mouthpiece to that generation. That, of course, is a study in itself, the way the Lord chooses people of different temperaments to do a job. 
But here you've got a man who feels intensely and has a very wide range of emotion. He, in spite of the fact that he's got a rather abrupt style and doesn't um, uh, waste words, um, he is a man of the most remarkably wide variation and range of emotion, which is somewhat un unusual in that type of person. That's very interesting. And also, we find him to be a sympathetic man, uh, deeply and truly sympathetic, and yet, though sympathetic and though utterly loyal, that's one of the loveliest aspects of the character of Hosea, he is piercingly discriminating, piercingly discriminating. Uh, he sees right through to the root of the problem. His own suffering, his own experience has given him a key, you know, to life and to human life. And he sees right through to the thing personally and nationally. So here we have a remarkable man, and one could say a singular man in many ways, a strong man, a very strong man, the way he is uh, not afraid to come right out into the open, a man of few words, we would say, abrupt and difficult in the style of his speech, and yet a man of a most unbelievable loyalty and depth of emotion and, and, and feeling. Um, he has been called the Jeremiah of Israel as Jeremiah was the Jeremiah, of course, of Judah, um, he has earned the title, and even today in many books that you will read about Hosea, you will come across this little phrase, the Jeremiah of Israel. There is a lot that is very like Jeremiah in um, Hosea. Uh, the same disjointedness, uh, the same depth of feeling, the, the same expression, I was going to say exhibition, <laughs> of inward uh, thought, uh, he doesn't hide it, you see, it does come out, although it is, he is not quite so uh, wordy, shall we say, uh, as the prophet Jeremiah. One of the, the ways that I've read of describing Hosea, which I think is very interesting, is that his style is one of ejaculation. He seems to ejaculate all the time. It's almost as if he's not preaching, but he's just thinking aloud. If you read through the prophecy of Hosea, I think you will note this um, uh, ejaculatory style, this kind of um, sense of him just thinking out. He doesn't often even address people. It's as if he's talking with himself about things at times. Um, and it's a most remarkable uh, book in that way. But if his style is a bit difficult, and if he is a bit abrupt in many ways, uh, his message is undoubtedly one of the most moving and the most profound in the whole of the Old Testament. Um, it is an unparalleled expression of the love and the grace of God. Uh, of course, Isaiah and others have expressed something of the grace of God, but it was left to Hosea to somehow etch the grace of God as, as he learned it in his own experience in such a way that he was more qualified, uh, more qualified to be able to speak than even Isaiah. Isaiah, you see, had not suffered in the same way that Hosea uh, did. Uh, he had not um, gone through the deep experience and learnt in his own uh, circumstances the lessons uh, that were to lead him to the most glorious discovery uh, of the character of God. Um, it's not, of course, only an expression of the grace and the love of God, but a word we don't often use about God I would say it is an expression of the loyalty of God. Um, perhaps that's one of the most remarkable things, the tender and loyal grace of God. Um, that's the thing that Hosea uh, writes for us. He places on record something. The forgiving nature of God's love. Not just that God is love, but that there, there is a, a forgiving quality 
in God's love and character. Uh, something which, as I say, it's very, very hard to uh, understand uh, and to put into words. Um, those of you who might think that in the Old Testament God is only revealed as a God of justice and a God of wrath and a God of law and a God of truth and righteousness, as so often we hear, might do well to attentively study this book of Hosea. For it reveals more than even we find in the New Testament the tenderness of the love of God for his own. The, uh, the depth of tenderness and the loyalty of God once he has committed himself to a human life. Dr. Scroggie has said that there is the, a lot has been written about the loyalty of a pure woman for an unfaithful husband. But very little has been written of the uh, loyalty of a strong man for an unfaithful wife. This whole story, this whole book, has grown out of the loyalty of a man, of a strong man, for an unfaithful wife. Someone that he loved as he loved no one else except the Lord and who proved to be absolutely unfaithful to a degree. That's why, of course, the book of Hosea has about it a ring, a ring of genuineness and of depth. Nearly everyone who has in any way had anything to do with the uh, book of Hosea in a scholarly way uh, has had to admit that there is a depth to Hosea which is intangible. There's a depth to this little book. It may only be 14 chapters, but you feel you're in an ocean, that you're lost. And I'm sure it all goes back to the simple fact, the simple principle, that behind the ministry lay the most unbelievable anguish of personal experience. That's the key, I'm sure, to it. The thought so clear in Hosea of this marriage relationship of the Lord uh, to his own, his faithfulness and their uh, unfaithfulness or their adultery, their harlotry, is not a new one. Uh, in previous scripture, uh, we shall find it. Previous, that is only an arrangement. But we must remember that Hosea preceded both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were to develop so strongly this theme of the marriage relationship of the Lord to his own. Hosea was the first one to proclaim in bold and definite terms uh, this covenant relationship, which we shall see in a few moments when we look at it, between the Lord and, and his people. Isaiah, and this is a wonderful theme because it shows what God does so often, Isaiah, at the same time as Hosea was ministering in Israel, Isaiah was ministering in Judah, and he was saying the same thing, thy maker, thy husband, thy husband, and uh, preaching something uh, of the same uh, message uh, as Hosea. Well, that's just a little bit of, a, of an introduction. It was at this point in history that prophetic literature began to appear. Up to then it had all been oral. Uh, prophecy. Elijah and Elisha have left to us not a single word, hardly, of their ministry. We don't really know what, they, what the theme of their ministry was, what it was like. Um, uh, with Hosea, with Amos and Hosea, uh, there begins to appear what we call prophetic literature. They were the first of the prophets to commit their message to writing, which was to have the most profound effect upon the course of history. Uh, it's strange how a small thing can have such a profound effect, not just merely upon a, an individual, but upon nations, uh, and in, in the end, uh, upon the world. And then one other thing, Hosea is quoted quite a number of times in the New Testament, and in, in an important way. Now, is there anything we can learn about the authorship before we go to the very interesting aspect of the background? Is there anything we can find about the authorship and the date uh, of this book? The book claims, if you look at Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1, to be the word of the Lord unto Hosea. 
simply, clearly, it claims to be what the Lord said to and through the prophet Hosea. Some scholars deny that uh, Hosea is the author of various portions of the book, principally those that deal with blessing and salvation and those that refer to Judah. There are some uh, scholars who feel that anything that refers either to blessing or salvation uh, cannot possibly belong to any of the early prophets because their, their ministry evidently was one unmitigated uh, dirge. Uh, they knew nothing of salvation and blessing. Uh, that's one of the objections anyway that's raised to this. Anything that refers to Judah, anything that refers or deals with blessing and salvation is undoubtedly not the work of Hosea. Other objections are the way in which the book is dated. They say that as he was supposed to be a native of the northern kingdom, that is the kingdom of Israel in the north, why does he date his ministry by the kings of Judah? I hope some of you have got the answer to that. Um, and then another objection is the use of the third person, uh, in the first three chapters. These are the objections that are raised. I don't think we need seriously even deal with the question uh, as to whether there's another author of those portions to do with blessing sal and salvation. To me, I don't think that's in, in, even important enough to answer. But the question of the way it's dated, I think we might just say one word about it. It's very interesting that he should date all his ministry and this book by the kings of Judah and not the kings of Israel. He only adds Jeroboam afterwards. The reason is this, that he later in his own ministry says that they have made kings of their own accord and it is sin. In other words, although he was a native of the kingdom of Israel, he refused to recognize the rebellious and divisive line of uh, Jeroboam. Uh, that he could not um, accept. Uh, that's a very interesting point. Um, therefore, he dates it by the Messiah's line. He goes back to the royal line, to which he believes in the end is going to uh, bring in the Messiah. Another little point for those of you who are interested, you all know the division of the people of God into Israel and Judah speaks a lot about God's people on the right ground and God's people on the wrong ground. And here you might have, as so often in the case of these prophets, another little and very interesting uh, indication of the way that the prophets, although their sphere was so often the people of God on the wrong ground, were in spirit and principle on the right ground themselves. Um, then again, the question of the third person. Here there is a slight difficulty because often Eastern books are written completely by an author referring to himself in the third person. That's all right. But here there is this strange transition from the first three chapters in the third person to the first person of the last ten uh, chapters. That is a, 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 a little greater difficulty. We ought also to make uh, a point of noting that there are great, great difficulties in the book due to the fact that from chapter 4 to chapter 14, we have almost, um, be careful of taking the word too technically, but almost an anthology of his preaching, a kind of collection of different discourses given over a very large number of years. Um, of course, you might question why, but uh, it is so. Uh, all agree here that these last chapters are cover quite a large number of years of his ministry and have been a kind of condensing of the theme of his ministry. And then those first three chapters cover quite a large number of years, you know. They cover his, his birth, uh, his um, uh, marriage. They cover the birth of three of his children. They cover the adultery of his wife and then her harlotry. And they uh, cover later her being sold when her lover gets tired of her uh, as a slave and how he finds her and how he buys her back and how she's reinstated. Uh, 
all that covers quite a number of years. I'm sure it didn't all happen just in a year or two. That covers quite a number of years. So we have there again one of the difficulties uh, that presents itself in this book is that it's not a flowing, uh, harmonious uh, unfolding, as it were, of a theme, as you would get if you were writing up a subject, you see, and you sat down and wrote 14 chapters. Uh, it's more apparent that it's all, it's one author. But when you get a ministry, sometimes a few verses, as it were, taken from uh, this year of his life and a few verses from that year of his life and a few verses later on and brought together, you get a slightly disjointed uh, um, style again. These, of course, all um, make for a certain amount of difficulty. And then also with the book of Hosea, there is difficulty with the language and difficulty with the text. It's one of the uh, books that there's very great difficulty over establishing exactly what the original meant, uh, uh, apart from the difficulties of the language when we're clear as to what the original meant. Uh, however, there doesn't seem to be sufficient uh, reason for putting aside the authorship of Hosea. It begins with, this is the word of the Lord unto Hosea. One very interesting suggestion, which may have an awe, a world of truth in it, is that it may well be that Hosea committed to writing the main part of this book as we now have it, and that after he died, one of his disciples uh, finally uh, put it into the form that we now have it. Uh, that may well be um, uh, uh, a true uh, key and clue to this book. Whatever we might feel, it is clear that this represents the ministry, the life, the experience, and the ministry of a man called Hosea, who lived in the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel. The book covers the period 782 to about 721. And it could not have been put into its present form much before that date, uh, round about 720. Couldn't have been very much before then that it was uh, put into what the form we have it. Another just point about Hosea is that most of Hosea is in, is in poetic form. It's poetry, um, except for chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 and the whole of chapter 3. The rest of the book is in pure poetic form. Now, what about the background of Hosea? Can we say anything about the background of Hosea? Well, Hosea has, first of all, uh, his name means the Lord is salvation, or the Lord my saviour. And it may interest you all to know that it is the same, it's only a variation of the word, of the name Joshua. Joshua, Hosea, or Hosea are the same. And then later on, you have the New Testament form of it, Jesus. Hosea had exactly the same name as Jesus. Jesus, Hosea, they're the same name, variations of the same name. And they mean, the Lord is my salvation, or the Lord, my salvation. All that we know about Hosea, we find in his book. He's hardly mentioned outside of his book. And we're glad that we have quite a lot of information in his book about him. He was a son of a man called Be'eri, not Be'eri, and a native of the northern kingdom. Uh, there are many very uh, strange and interesting um, traditions about um, Hosea. Some say that he was the son of a Reubenite prince. That's one Jewish tradition. Christian tradition says that he was born of the tribe of Issachar in a place called Beth Shemesh uh, in Israel. Um, there are all kinds of traditions, strangely enough, that have gathered around uh, the prophet Hosea. One thing we can establish, and that was that he was not born and not brought up as far as we can see in a city, because all his ministry uh, um, takes as illustrations the most homely countryside customs. Uh, it's quite clear that he belonged to the country, as indeed did his contemporary Amos. Both of them were country men. He was born not long after Elisha's death. Elisha had died, but perhaps some uh, decade or two before 
uh, Hosea was born in the reign of Jeroboam II. Um, and uh, he began his ministry, we learn from Hosea 1, and I think verse 4, I'm not sure, or verse 14, uh, we learn from that that he began his ministry in the latter part of Jeroboam II's reign. Um, born sometime within it, because Jeroboam II had the longest reign in the whole of um, uh, Israel's royal house. Uh, it's slightly difficult to establish which really is the royal house of Israel because it changed so many times. Uh, but Jeroboam II had this um, one famous thing about uh, to be said for him, and that was that he had a long reign and a very prosperous and uh, honorable one. Hosea ministered at the same time as Isaiah and Judah, and his contemporaries in Israel were Amos and, and Jonah. Both of these were his contemporaries, and as far as we know, both of them were natives of Israel and not Judah. In the south, in Judah, Isaiah ministered, and so did Micah. Um, Jeroboam uh, Jeroboam's, Jeroboam II's reign was the most prosperous phase in the whole of Israel's short history. When I refer to Israel now, I'm only speaking of the northern kingdom that came into being after the death of Solomon. It was the most uh, glorious phase in their short history, and he was politically the greatest king since Solomon. The strange thing is that Scripture dismisses Jeroboam II with a few verses, which just goes to show that the Word of God does not take much note of political greatness or of uh, luxury if it's not linked with godliness and righteousness. But we do know from history that Jeroboam regained all the territory that had been lost for Israel and even subdued Syria. Well, he got as far as Damascus and took Syria. Uh, his reign was to see luxury and wealth and opulence such as had not been seen since the days of Solomon. And even today, there are some archaeological discoveries about the reign of Jeroboam II that, uh, that go to show that even the people living in the country had begun to come to a level of living, a standard of living, that they had not known before. Um, everything on every side was prosperous. Uh, evidently, he won his victories at the beginning of his reign, he was a very able administrator and a very fine soldier. And consequently, uh, having once regained the territory that had been lost and subdued Syria, which was always a very doubtful quality uh, in the north, a uh, very doubtful neighbor indeed, um, he had before him a long reign in which the people could settle down to a peaceful phase. Now, with the luxury, that came in with Jeroboam, came all the attendant evils. Vice sprang up on every side, graft came in, corruption spread everywhere. The rich became exceedingly rich, and the poor became exceedingly poor. And all over the country, there was this corruption in administration, which meant that rich people took the ground from under poor people's feet and turned them into uh, bond slaves or just sold them uh, as chattels. This was the, one of the things that so enraged Amos and Hosea, that the country had become so utterly wicked, so corrupt, um, you could only get anywhere by bribing people in authority. That was the only way you could do anything or get anything done. If you were poor, there was no hope whatsoever of even being hurt. If you were rich, you could do anything, even that which was unjust and wrong with money. That's what had come in with luxury. Um, though, of course, there was much else that grew up as well, uh, along with the, this reign. Uh, it was followed by a period when Jeroboam finally died, 
Uh, his son came to the throne. He only reigned six months before he was murdered. It was followed by a period of anarchy and, per and, and general disorder. There were a series of revolutions. It's all very modern. Series of revolutions and, and um, a whole series of political assassinations. Four out of the five kings that followed Jeroboam were assassinated. Um, hardly any had more than a few years uh, on a very unstable and shaky throne. The whole thing was military despotism. And um, uh, the, the country itself began to break up. The whole political life and moral life of the country began to break up. So much so that you find, find things that have a very strangely modern and applicable strain. Uh, in, in, in Hosea's ministry, things like murder upon murder upon murder. The country is filled with murder. Um, the, the justice began to break down completely, and crime paid. So the country was filled, as Amos said, with filled with violence, uh, and this alongside of already the corruption in the better classes was something which was very, very um, terrible. Gradually, as the whole country broke up, the character of the country broke up, um, the, the country slid irrevocably uh, to its final end, uh, which of course was a final end. Israel has never reappeared uh, in history. Assyria, strangely enough at this time, uh, was very weak internally. That's one of the reasons why um, Israel could become so so uh, strong. And um, she was so internally weak until a general called Paul um, came to the, seize the throne, uh, took the name Tigris Pelisa, um, and with him changed the fortunes of Assyria at that point. And she immediately began to uh, start again on the road of power and strength. Um, of course, in Israel, there were factions all the time that wanted to ally themselves either with Israel or uh, either with Assyria or with Egypt. And I suppose the most terrible aspect was not the political one, and it wasn't even the international one, if you, for want of a better word. It was the religious and the spiritual side, which was perhaps the most terrible thing of all, and very few Christians understand it. Partly because it is really almost impossible to deal with it uh, publicly. Um, the spiritual worship of the people um, had become so utterly corrupt, a thing that they believed to be right and believed to be worship and the service of God, but which the prophet the prophets saw to be something utterly evil, utterly evil. It, it was inherently evil. It was something which was a disease, an infectious disease. Um, what was it? What really was it? The prophets were fighting this thing all the time. To them, that was the root of all the vice and the corruption and the bribery and the social uh, injustice in the country. They traced it all to the spiritual character uh, of the people, which had collapsed. What was it? The reason was not, you don't have to go very far to find it. But you have to understand it. You will not just understand it by reading the scripture. It was that the mixture of Baal and Jehovah, making Jehovah, the Lord, into a Baalized Jehovah. That simply meant that Jehovah was a super Baal, and Baal was a fertility god. Uh, one of these fertility gods that with which was... Uh, associated the grossest forms of immorality uh, and, and, uh, and other forms, other rites. Um, that really um, was the, the real root of the trouble 
uh, with um, with the spiritual character of the people. Um, Jehovah became a super Baal alongside these other gods. And he was given a wife, a goddess as a wife, and he was given children. And then to worship him meant often one aspect of worshipping him was prostitution. Uh, and that was considered to be worshipping the Lord. If you served the Lord, you paid a visit to one of the prostitutes who was in one of the high places or lived within one of the shrines uh, in, in, in the land. That's how you worship the Lord, or at least it was one aspect of the worship of the Lord. And by this so-called worship of the Lord, you were thought to, to be fertilizing the ground. You were increasing the fer the uh, the fertility in the ground, and you were keeping the cycle of nature moving. Now, to the prophet, this was the most terrible thing of all, that Jehovah had been brought down to the level of a fertility god and just made into another Baal, only a super Baal, a better one than the others, and that his worship and even sacrifice had now become linked with the, the grossest forms of immorality. Of course, it was not just simply that it was a kind of religious thing, but along with it came all the disease and the unhappiness uh, um, uh, that stems from uh, immor immorality. Uh, Israel was almost completely overwhelmed by the Baal cult. Uh, she never got over it when first she took the country, but it got into the very fabric of the national life. And that was why there was, all over the, the nation, a moral laxity and degradation. Even the marriage relationship had become something very loose, easy and loose. Divorce was something that was just practiced everywhere. All, all a person had to say was just, I divorced him, that was that. Uh, the man, uh, everything was on his side. The law of God, with all its safeguards and securities, had been completely dismissed and forgotten. It was in the background. The sacrificial system had now taken on uh, a new look. It was given a new look. The priesthood had become Baalized. Jehovah himself had somehow become mixed up with this unclean uh, thing. And priest and prophet and king and people were swept along uh, by it all. To them, all this talk of Jehovah was transferred to this Baalized Jehovah. That was the insidious nature of it. You could talk about Jehovah. You could worship Jehovah. But whom they worshipped was not Jehovah at all. And that's the thing that the prophet sought to bring out. Now, Hosea was a young man when he came into this whole terror, this terrible atmosphere. Um, this was the background in which he ministered. And uh, never once in the whole of his life did that general situation lift for a moment. But it grew steadily worse and worse. So that even from Amos to Hosea, there was a marked uh, decline uh, in the life of God's people. And indeed, Hosea was God's last opportunity to his people to turn away from that which was destroying them. Hosea was a young man, as I've said, when he came, when he started to minister. He was told to marry a woman who was going to prove later unfaithful. Of course, there's great question, what exactly did it mean when the Lord said to him, go marry a woman, of, uh, 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 a woman who is in harlot? What did it mean? Um, did the Lord actually tell him to go marry uh, uh, someone who was already immoral? Or was it that the Lord told him to marry a woman who was rather evidently he loved, I'm quite sure that he just didn't go and then love. He loved first, it's obvious. Uh, and the Lord said to, to him, you go, this woman's going to prove unfaithful, but you marry her. All right, you marry her. You go and, go and marry her. Or is it m perhaps more terrible 
it may seem to you all. But was it, as many have suggested, was she indeed one of the religious male prostitutes? That was perhaps a very much nicer woman. Perhaps she had only just been trained for it and not right in it, that he had really loved. We don't know. But what we do know is this, that it wasn't very long after their marriage, which evidently at the beginning was happy, uh, that the seeds of real <coughs> unhappiness began to come to the surface. They had, of course, as you know, three children. Each one was given a symbolic name. The Lord uh, spoke to Hosea. And then we begin to discover the breakup of the whole of Hosea's life. Uh, his wife, evidently, is, un is, is unfaithful. And finally, she leaves him for one of her lovers, and uh, we don't see her for quite a while. She's gone completely out of his life. And we don't know how many years later, but he comes across her being sold as a slave. From what we can gather, she was now broken in spirit, broken in body. They only wanted 15 pieces of silver for her, and you all, I hope, know that 30 pieces of silver was the uh, standard uh, price for a slave. She was evidently so poor now, so broken in every way, that she was not wanted anymore. He bought her for 15 pieces, half price. He got her as Ellison uh, puts it out, damaged goods, half price. Tragedy of it all. The woman had become a chattel. And even more sad is the suggestion, which I think is a true one, that her own lover probably tired of her and sold her to get rid of her. She had learnt the most bitter and the most terrible lesson at the hands of this world. She had a husband who really loved her, but there was something in her that couldn't be faithful to him, and she went out. Scripture suggests, the book of Hosea suggests, that even Hosea's children may not have been his own. And there are many who believe that it is quite possible that he didn't even know whether he was the father uh, of some of the children that were born into his family. That was the unfaithfulness of his wife. Here there was a man who loved God and who proved himself to be the most remarkable man because of his reaction to the woman he loved. Instead, as so often, shutting her out, he refused to divorce her. That in itself was one of the most remarkable things because according to Deuteronomy, he was permitted to divorce her. He had absolute grounds for divorcing her, but he would not hear of it. He refused in those years to take another wife and he refused to divorce her. Not because he felt it was wrong, I think, but because he loved her. That's the, the, the story of the book of Hosea. He loved her so much that he would not take what he legally, legitimately could do. He, could, he wouldn't take that action. And finally, when he found her, no doubt, she'd lost her looks, she'd lost her figure, she'd lost everything, I've no doubt about that. But such was his love for her that he redeems her out of the pit into which she'd got herself and he reinstates her as his own wife in his home. That's the background of the book of Hosea. Uh, you might think a dark background. When you look at the political side, when you look at the religious side, and then when you look at poor Hosea's life, uh, his domestic life, his personal life, everything seems to be broken, everything seems to be upside down. But you see, in, in reality, it was all leading to one of the most remarkable and eternal ministries that we have in Scripture. Out of that man's anguish and personal, the personal breakup of his life has come a ministry which undoubtedly has been a comfort to millions of people ever since it first was given. It was, I have no doubt, the greatest single formative factor in the life of Hosea. His marriage, his family, the breakup of his marriage, the breakup in a sense of his own life, and then his, the finding of his wife again after years, and her redemption and re restoration 
was in the life of Hosea uh, the means by which God gave him a ministry. It is interesting that in Scripture, his ministry begins with his marriage to Goma. And it's when he has taken her back that we begin, uh, the book, as it were, begins to develop. And from chapter 4 right through to chapter 14, you get this development um, of his ministry. Um, what, do we, what can we say? Can we say anything more? His experience uh, enabled him to see not only the sin, and this is the wonderful point of it, his experience enabled him to see not only the sin and the judgment that must inevitably come upon it, but it enabled him to see into God's heart and to understand that God was not harsh and severe, but that in actual fact God was unbelievably tender. This was the thing that Hosea understood through his own experience. He saw himself as a picture of the Lord. He saw his wife as a picture of Israel. And out of that was born the most profound and moving ministry that we've got in these 12 prophets. I don't think that one could say anything this evening more important really than that uh, because it does again only underline uh, the, uh, the principle of experience leading to ministry, if you like and ministry being linked uh, to experience. Now, can we find anything in here of the key to this book? It's not hard to find the key to, the, to, to Hosea. It's, I have put it like this, it's the insatiable love of God uh, for his own and his faithfulness. And his undying loyalty to us. Once God has committed himself to us, he has an undying loyalty an undying loyalty uh, to his own. If you want to look up these scriptures, you'll find them in Hosea 2, 19 and 20. Find the I will betroth thee unto me forever. We read that this evening. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, the Lord said unto me, Go again, love a woman, beloved of a friend, and adulteress, even as the Lord loveth the children of Israel, though they turn unto other gods. And then you'll find it again in chapter 11 and in verse 4. I do them with the cords of a man and with the bands of love. The key to the book of Hosea is the love of God. But now listen, it is not the same as the Song of Solomon. Now, that's the interesting thing. The Song of Solomon speaks of love, but it speaks of love in a different way. It speaks of the love of God for his own and, and God's own for him and speaks of some of the difficulties that they might go through together. But nowhere in the Song of Solomon do you get anything like the degradation and the unfaithfulness that you've got here. When in the Song of Solomon... Uh, the beloved of the Lord uh, becomes a little bit tired of him. She's got so used to his love and his goodness and his gifts and his bounty and all the rest of it that when he comes to the door, she says, I'm too tired, I'm in bed. I can't get up to you. And you remember how uh, he cures her uh, of that attitude and spirit. And finally we find a very different person at the end of the Song of Solomon. But here we have a different, a different aspect of the love of God. It is the forgiving and the persevering and the redeeming love of God. Uh, God's love persevering with us and loving us, loving us into perfection. Loving us into perfection. Having taken hold of us, refusing to let go of us, but just gradually, uh, through love, bringing us finally into the place where he wants us. The heart of Hosea's message is in this word, which is used 247 times uh, in the Old Testament. It's the word mercy. 
But unfortunately, there's no English word that describes it because the word mercy has been changed, as you know, in the revised version to loving kindness. And in the revised standard version, it's been changed again to steadfast love because there's no real way, there's no English word that expresses the Hebrew word chesed, uh, mercy or loving kindness, or steadfast love. The only way that it can be described is by a whole group of sentences. That's the only way that we can describe it. It has been called a word which expresses loyalty and behavior expected from the one with whom one stands in a covenanted relationship. That's rather a mouthful, isn't it? Um, the loyalty and behavior one uh, expects from the one with whom you stand in a covenanted relationship. It's a wonderfully tender word and a meaningful word. And perhaps we could best express it as loyal, steadfast love. But you see, you start to overload it. Really, we should say loyal, steadfast, long-suffering but that's got a kind of charitable uh, smack about it, and this hasn't got that at all. We could say it was covenanted, loyal, and tender love, but I think the best way of describing it is the troth of a married couple, the troth of an ideal married couple. The way two people are betrothed and from that day, a loyalty comes into existence between those two, which can never be shattered. It's not just sheer duty. It's love, which gives rise to loyalty, which gives rise to a tenderness, and a faithfulness, and a patience, and a long-suffering, and a steadfastness, and a variety of other things. And that's this Hebrew word, chesed. That's the only way that we can describe it. The truth between a married couple, where two people plight their truth to each other and say that from that point onwards they're going to care for each other and they will never be unfaithful, unfaithful to each other, but they will remain faithful to each other because they love each other. Not because they've got to be faithful, not because they think it's righteous to be faithful, but because they love to be faithful. Now, that's what this word means. Now, when you understand that, you've got to the key of the book of Hosea. You see, Hosea had shown uh, this, has said, to his wife, but she had not returned it. He had revealed and expressed to her, a, in his troth, something utterly loyal, utterly faithful, that came out of love for her, but she returned it quite differently. And in the same way, this was only a picture of the Lord. He has, as it were, plighted his truth to us, and we have to him. And the Lord is going to remain absolutely faithful and loyal, not because it's righteous, not because it's his duty, but because he loves us. His faithfulness to us is out of his love for us. His loyalty to us comes out of his love and grace. That's his side, and he wants us to be the same to him. He wants our reaction to be one of loyalty to him, faithfulness to him, that comes out of love for him, and not the fact that, well, if I don't, I'll go to hell, or if I don't, something will go wrong. Uh, no, it comes out of a love. A covenanted love, that's the real point. And that's why in Hosea you get it mentioned, and the words translated by all kinds of different words. Kindness is one, steadfast love is another, love is another. The authorised version translates this word, chesed, by goodness. So you can see that they've had a terrible job translating this one little word. That's the thing God wants us to return. We've got here the most wonderful picture of the grace and love of God in the Old Testament. The church, you know, whatever you might think about it, is in itself, in itself, absolutely worthless 
It is a degrade, we are degra a degraded thing in ourselves, aren't we? When you think of us when the Lord first set his love upon us, what degraded people we really were. How absolutely lost to God we were and to uh, heaven. You see, that's the whole point of it. An unclean, degraded, uh, worthless people. And then you suddenly find the Lord marrying us. Not because he thinks he ought to. Not because he thinks it's the righteous thing to do. But because he loves us. That's the love story behind human history. And that is the terribleness of the wrath of God. Because it is the wrath of unrequited love. People who have spurned the love of God see, instead of succumbing to it. Um, when you begin to see that, you begin to understand. Because, you see, it's not simply that we were like that when we were saved, but don't you think that since that day we've deserved a divorce? When you think how many times we might have felt God said over us, I divorced thee. When you think of what we've been like, of what we've done. The way, indeed, as Hosea says, we've taken all the bounty of the Lord and used it for sinfulness. To strengthen our hand in going on the way in which we think, instead of his way. That's what Hosea says. He says, all the wine, the grain, the milk, everything that I've given them, they've used in the wrong way. To go the wrong way. To strengthen themselves in the wrong way. I think there we have the most wonderful picture of the grace and the love of God, not only in our conversion and our salvation, but above all in the fact that God refuses to divorce us. That is the most wonderful thing of all. He refuses to divorce us, even when we prove to be absolute adulterers and adulteresses, when we prove to be spiritual harlots, God refuses to divorce. He waits and he waits. And he waits, and he waits. And judgment must come. There will come a day when we're broken in spirit, and we're broken in body, and we've lost the looks we've got. We had, and the figure we, we had, and the money we had, and the beauty we had, and everything else, the character, perhaps, we even thought we had. We've lost the lot. That's what always happens with the backslider. And that's why you see the book of Hosea is a book for the backslider. Because every backslider follows in principle this book. They go out with their lovers. They forsake the law, their husband, for some paramour. And out they go into the world. And at first everything's rosy and lovely and they're happy and they're growing and they've got everything they want and everything's bountiful. And then gradually their lover becomes tired of them. They grow old, they grow lying become broken and gradually they find they're no longer free they're in bondage, and they find that the fetters that have been forged upon them are far far more terrible than they ever thought and the thing they have consorted with now becomes their master and sells them God always finds the backslider at the right time just at the right time God always steps in and he always redeems again the backslider. That's why the book of Hosea then is such a wonderful book. You see, instead of finding the divorce of God for so much that's unfaithful in us, we find instead we discover the faithfulness and the tender love of God persevering with us until he loves us into the image of his son. Yeah. We find that God perseveres with us and triumphs in the end through love he triumphs in the end through love I don't know whether you've ever had any experience of that when you've done something very wrong and then you've you've, you've just suddenly felt inwardly oh my now what's going to happen oh, the Lord's going to take this out on me I know it and then all of a sudden instead of doing that the Lord does the most gracious thing that you could possibly think and then you think well now is, what, is it true Surely the Lord wouldn't do a thing like this. But you see, that's just like the Lord. It's the grace of God. It's the love of God. He will never judge until it's absolutely necessary. 
If he can love us through without judgment, he will do it. But if we refuse, then we'll have to go the way of judgment. But even judgment's not an end, and that's the book of Hosea. Judgment is only a wonderful means to bring us back to where the Lord can say, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. I will be as the dew unto Israel. They shall be this. They shall be that. They shall be the other. That's really the story. So I want you to see that and do see that Hosea sees sin as adultery, harlotry, spiritual adultery and harlotry. And he, to him, the most heinous sin is the sin of not yielding to the love of God. That to him is the most terrible thing. I think it's Campbell Morgan who has said that the most terrible sin of all is when we sin against God's love. You see, there came a point, you know, a most wonderful point in this story, which I trust we will be able to look at sometime, where um, the Lord says, What shall I do unto thee, Ephraim? And it looks as if it's going to be a very, very, very stiff sentence for Ephraim. But then all of a sudden you come to a new phase, and the Lord says, Ephraim, how can I give thee up? It's, it's the Lord who's saying, Ephraim has said, I can give thee up. She's gone. She's just gone. She could give the Lord up just like that. And she's gone. And now the Lord wrestles with himself. Righteously, he should divorce Ephraim forever. But he finds himself almost humiliated. He finds he can't do it. He finds within his heart something that he says, I can't. How can I give Ephraim up? How can I give the up? So I think you have got, really, as someone has said, to the most evangelical prophet of the Old Testament, more evangelical perhaps than even Isaiah himself. You've got to the, to the one who has understood the redeeming grace of God in a way that no other prophet perhaps understood it. Well, there's just a little about the book of... Um, I'm afraid it's been rather a lot, but I do hope that you've learned a little bit. But if you aren't bored, then I'm a little bit sad in some ways, um, because it's sad to think that you have to say the same thing again and people don't realise that it's been said already. Well, let's ask the Lord that we may not let these studies on these books pass away, flow over us, and uh, we don't really learn their message and meaning. And now, dear Lord Jesus, we thank Thee that Thou art able to unlock these books to us, and we do pray together, Lord, that Thou wilt make us alive, intelligently alive to the meaning of this part of thy word. We give it all back now to thee, Lord, and we do pray that thou wilt use these moments of revision to emphasize in all our hearts more clearly and more definitely what thou hast been saying in these past months. And wilt thou, we pray, Lord, send us back to search the scriptures whether these things are so. And so to become convinced that not by man, but by the Holy Spirit himself. We ask it all together with much thanksgiving what thou art in the name of our Lord Jesus.